Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's a special podcast because we've had a news-filled weekend uh, and we have an especially great group because it's Monday. It's our spy show. So that means our co-host Mark Palmeropoulos is here fresh off the morning Joe set. But frankly, Mark, you don't look like you dressed up. I mean, don't you dress up for television? No, so you know, this is an ongoing joke between Cypher and I. I refuse to wear a tie. Um, I have a polo shirt, and I was actually wearing the same sport coat for I think a year and a half. So I, I switched that up. But uh, but you know, I have to I have to stay true to my roots as a as a you know a New Jersey kid, and so I, I will not wear a tie. I will not even wear a polo shirt. And John usually makes some. I, I, I have to say one thing. I was on TV a couple times this weekend wearing a tie, and I'm from New Jersey. Uh, we do have ties <laughs> in New Jersey, but that's okay. It's okay. But it's you're, your thing. you're respectable. There's a difference there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an <laughs> excellent point. You can hear there that we are joined by our friend, one of the people with whom we cooked up this whole crazy idea. Uh, also, former CIA veteran who had a lot of experience um, in the country. We'll be talking about John Cipher. Hi, John. Hey, glad glad to be here. Uh, I can see you're dressed down too. And then the ever elegant um, uh, uh, national security correspondent for the Washington Post. Um, uh, uh, Shane, let me ask you a question. Um, You've been breaking stories uh, all weekend. How do you find time to do this podcast? I mean, for the two of you and for Cypher, I mean, I, I make the time. I mean, this I, this is not an opportunity I was prepared to miss. Uh, but no, like, well, we're all waiting to find out where Yevgeny Prigozhin is. I've got, I've got, a, I've got 30 minutes, so we're, yeah. we're good. We're good. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. I was thinking, because we've all been in the business of trying to uh, provide insight into uh, what we knew uh, this was happening this weekend, but actually most of what was happening we didn't know. Um, and uh, even today, as of this time, we, we don't really know a lot. We don't know where Prigozhin is. We don't know where uh, his Wagner forces are. I just saw a story saying they're establishing a camp for 8,000 of them in Belarus, far from Ukraine. Um, uh, uh, but we don't know where they are. 
We don't know whether uh, the, what the fates are of the Minister of Defense or the uh, uh, our, uh, Chief of Staff of the military in Russia. Um, uh, we don't know what Ukraine's going to do to take advantage of this. Um, we don't know whether Putin's weakness is going to trigger or inspire anybody else. Um, uh, and so uh, I think we need to to focus on some of those things and what they mean. But to do that, let's frame it with what we do know. Shane, you broke a a, a big story uh, uh, over the weekend about what the intelligence community in the U.S. knew. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, what, what we found was that, the, you know, obviously there have been tremendous tensions between Prigozhin and, you know, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, and Gerasimov, the chief of staff of the military. And we've seen those publicly breaking out with, you know, Prigozhin recording these fiery telegram videos where he's slinging vulgarities, the two of them. And basically, you know, it was obvious that there was some real tension here. But what we found was that the intelligence community particularly isolated this order that had been kind of enacted on June 10th, where all of the Wagner mercenary fighters in Ukraine were essentially going to have to sign up with the regular army. So they were going to absorb, the army was going to absorb Prigozhin's fighters. And what the intelligence analysts who were looking at this found was that this was sort of a bridge too far for Prigozhin and seems to be kind of the inciting incident that led him to decide, you know, now is the time to kind of to make a move. Uh, it's not entirely clear to us, you know, how they obtained this information, what more they know, but they were kind of pointing to that. And of course, in subsequent uh, days to that as well, there were, you know, attacks, Prigozhin says, by the Russian military on his forces, which he publicly responded to on Telegram as well. So <clears throat> it seems like this kind of hit a breaking point when, you know, arguably the the powers that be in the Russian military apparatus try to make a move on Prigozhin, and Prigozhin says, I'm not putting up with it, and then they saddle up and ride into Rostov. Yeah, by the way, somebody just sent me a note here that explained that I didn't actually introduce Shane properly because, you know, we used to work together. And so I was just like, exactly. oh, there's. <laughs> it's like we're just hanging out in the office. Yeah, again. it's like, oh, there's, <laughs> there's Shane. Uh, but of course, it's Shane Harris who is uh, uh, writes about intelligence and national security for the Washington Post. You also do a podcast with those lawfare guys, don't you? We do, called Chatter, yes, which we're going to record an episode later today. It's the day of podcasts. It's Yeah, well, that's everybody. We live in the world of podcasts. That's what Indeed. most people do most of the time. John, as you watched all this unfold, what are the takeaways, before we get to what we don't know, that you said, well, this is absolutely the consequence. You know, like this is, this tells me this about the situation in Russia. Well, my goal for this podcast is to find out Shane's sources inside the intelligence community. So we're going to have to work on work on that. Because I think there's a little ass covering by the intelligence agencies acting like, oh, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. And I frankly, I don't buy it. I mean, I, we all saw the same stuff that Prigozhin was saying. And we all understood that, that caused, would cause problems with, with Putin because Putin wasn't, you know, he's supposed to be the arbiter among all these big warlords and obviously had put it off and led, led to this, this thing. So, you know, this is not necessarily an immediate crisis solved, right? So, yes, this happened. Now Prigozhin has left. You can argue that, okay, the immediate crisis of, of these armed people heading up to Moscow is solved. But the bigger picture, in my view, is this creates a long-term crisis of confidence uh, in Vladimir Putin 
and in the in the Kremlin, in a country where power is totally based on image, right? It's about Putin's reputation as a strong leader who brooks no disloyalty. He's all about stability. He's all about being a powerful man. Um, he's shown to be himself weak and incompetent. And, it, you know, it adds a sense of dysfunction in domestic control that we hadn't seen before to an already sense of dysfunction in the military in Ukraine. So it's going to be something that's going to be going on for a long time. And frankly, Putin's uh, choices going forward are all pretty bad. Um, you know, if he lets Prigozhin go and doesn't do anything, he looks weak. You know, two days ago, he was calling him a scum trader and Prigozhin shot down Russian helicopters and he gets off scot-free. But if he kills Prigozhin, you know, Prigozhin, frankly, has hit on a really powerful narrative. He's the only one that's being honest about how awful the situation is in Ukraine. He's saying that Russian boys are being sent to their slaughter while rich people in the Kremlin's kids are running around in the Middle East and Europe. That's a pretty strong narrative. And so killing him is sort of dangerous because there's probably a lot of people loyal to him and he's sort of the Russian everyman. If he fires Shoigu or Gerasimov, this looks like Prigozhin's calling the shots and he's more powerful than Putin. But if he leaves Shoigu and, and Gerasimov, then Prigozhin's narrative of military dysfunction uh, looks to be true. He's the one honest man. And, and frankly, it looks like Putin is nervous about the loyalty of his institutions to him. When push came to shove in a crisis, you know, where was the military? Where were his security services? He had to worry that there was people in there that might be loyal to, to Prigozhin and others, and they wouldn't do anything. And I lived in Russia in the 90s. We saw that in 1991. When push came to shove, you know, the, the Russian people just sat on the sidelines because, you know, they're oppressed. They don't have a vote in their system. And so they're not, they might not go out on the street and protest. But, you know, when the government needs them to back them, they're not there. And so there's a lot of problems going forward for Vladimir Putin. You know, this is a one day crisis, but I think it's going to be a crisis of confidence for months to come. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's also clear this crisis is not over, right, Mark? I mean, uh, this morning we learned that. Uh, uh, they were going to continue to prosecute Prigozhin, um, right? You know, so, um, you know, the narrative changes on a fairly regular basis, and there's still a lot of other shoes to drop. I want to ask you a question, Mark, though, because I've seen some of the things that you've tweeted out and said, if you're the U.S. intelligence community right now, what do you do with this? Are there things you do to try to take advantage of it? Right, David. And so, well, well, first and foremost, I'm going to answer that in a second, but I just I do have to give a quick welcome uh, to our guests. First of all, John Seifer, uh, uh, it was my former instructor down the farm. So I always I was joking around that he birthed me, birthed me. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> and that hurt. All the great successes and all the terrible failures. Well, how come, how come he looks all, how come he looks better preserved than you is the question. I, well, that's, that's I, I did harder things maybe. Uh, uh, over the years. Oh. So this is the big rivalry between kind of the counterterrorism world and, and his old world doing Russia stuff. No, but it's awesome having John. Uh, Shane uh, was one of the first journalists, actually, when I when I decided to talk to, uh, you know, uh, work you know in, in the media, one of the first journalists I spoke to. And the amazing thing with this group right now, everybody here has been to the Vienna Inn, <laughs> which is, of course, the headquarters of what? Of the headquarters of the deep state. So absolutely. All right, back, back to your uh, your question on the, on the IC. A couple things. You know, one of the, it was interesting because you know there is a degree of is some question on how much did we pick up, but you know on, on things like this, you know, there's things called indicators and warning, and so really the the job of the intelligence community is to provide that warning function uh, for policymakers, and it looks perhaps that they did that. You know, do we really know? Did we really know what Pergozin was going to do? No, but you know, as as Shane and others has reported, uh, you know, there was a gang of eight meeting. That's the the congressional leadership where 
uh, presumably Bill Burns and Avril Haines briefed. Um, so, so perhaps they, they did provide that, uh, that warning, but, and so, you know, what matters now, um, and there's, you know, there's, there's two things I think that's going to be, or three things that are it's going to be on the mind of the intelligence community. The first is of course, regime stability. Um, you know, there's going to be, you know, all source collection on, uh, on, on, uh, leadership communications out of, out of the Kremlin, but also military communications. You know, what is the FSB, the SVR thinking? And a good thing on that is when crises happen, people get yappy. You know, this is, you know, NSA is, you know, they're popping champagne corks right now, I, I would think. So so there's going to be, you know, focus on leadership comps. The second is going to be just the, the Russian nuclear posture. You know, that's going to be, of course, the, the big fear of the Pentagon in particular. So and we have standard collection on that. But the last piece, David, I think this is what you're getting at is how do you almost operationalize this? And this is the notion that, you know, let's let's now focus on Ukraine. And, you know, what can actually and John's talked about this a lot. What can the U.S. do in, inside Russia now? Well, nothing. Uh, what can we do in terms of, kind of affecting the situation in Ukraine? Well, perhaps up the ante a little bit. Let's send attack of missiles. Because one of the things that this entire affair, I think, has, has kind of shattered is the notion that Putin is going to outlast us. And that has been absolutely, it's driven me crazy. I've tweeted about it nonstop. But, you know, the, the, the idea that this, you know, this, this solid, stable regime of Russia is going to, uh, is going to kind of um, uh, outlast us and, and, you know, Western resolve will weaken. Um, uh, I don't think that's, that is, that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, valid anymore. And I think that's a really big deal. Um, as it comes up, you know, we have two weeks to the NATO summit. Let's see what, what these, what the leaders discuss now, but focus on Ukraine up the ante, you know, Ukraine has their boot on Russia's necks, you know, you know, step down harder. I, I, I have to ask a question here before we go on to more serious business. Shane, you are one of the world's great foodies. You know, I mean, I follow you on Twitter because you take pictures of your meals and you then describe <laughs> them. Um, how did they get you into the Vienna Inn, which is one of the most repulsive restaurants on the East Coast of the United States? You know, this is what the CIA specializes in, David, is deceit and trickery. I was told that the Vienna Inn was like a five-star, you know, Viennese Michelin experience with schnitzel to die for. And I walk in and I'm hit by this veil of stale beer and hot dogs. But, you know, it was for Mark. I mean, it was really, that's just, this is what I do. Yeah. Well, are, this is my, this is my, my hardship duty. You are a dedicated, you are a dedicated um, um, journalist. Um, as, as you look at this right now. Um, there was a lot of coverage this weekend where people were on TV kind of making stuff up. And I, I got to tell you, there are a lot of crappy analysts on TV. You know, they like bring people. I was like, oh, yeah, this guy's got a Russian last name. We're going to bring him on. He's going to talk about Russia. Or this person worked at the Department of Homeland Security. That has the word security in it. Let's have them talk about this. And 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 so we got a lot of confusion. As you look ahead to the week ahead, and you want to report this story, focusing on what the critical components are. What are you looking at? Well, what we are trying to do right now is <clears throat> answer the question: A, what the hell just happened? First of all, um, because as we were all watching this unfold. On Saturday, and I was, you know, kind of on and have been up all night with colleagues, you know, we were expecting potentially, you know, Prigozhin to march on Moscow and we would be seeing, you know, events, nothing like we'd seen since the early 90s. That didn't happen. Everyone is kind of left 
scratching their heads. So A, what happened here? And to answer that question, we are trying to find the people who are in, you know, of course, Mark and, and John's line of work, who are the ones who will be listening for those communications, who will be trying to tap whatever sources they have available to understand what is this deal that was worked out? What are the contours of it? Who did what when? Because that will tell us what's perhaps likely to happen going forward. Um, at the same time, you know, and this is kind of to, to, to kind of riff a little bit off of your, you know, the talking heads who go on TV and just sort of, you know, say what they think. I'm looking to talk to people who are also confused right now. I mean, when we got assigned yesterday a story by our editors saying, you know, we'll find out what the intelligence community knows about this. And I said, I can pretty much guarantee you they're asking exactly the same questions we are and watching a lot of the same videos on Telegram that we are. So I'm looking for people who are asking these questions and are now going to start trying to find the information that will tell them the answers and not people who are prognosticating. Um, the, also, the key things I want to watch is where does Prigozhin go? I mean, we don't know if he's actually in Belarus right now. There are reports that he has not gone there yet. Um, you know, keeping track of that will be difficult, but presumably he might decide to take the telegram and tell us what he thinks again, which is often very helpful. Um, and you know, I think we are, you know, as ever trying to understand, you know, what Putin is going to do. Obviously, very difficult for the intelligence community as well. He's a very hard leadership target. I'm also watching really closely how Ukrainian officials are responding to this. I mean, one of the first things I heard from a good Ukrainian intelligence source of mine, and, and Zelensky echoed this, by the way, when he gave his own readout of his call with Biden on Sunday, is they're using this as an opportunity to say, give us more weapons. Putin is not 10 feet tall. You can challenge him. He is not going to use a nuclear weapon. So they're seizing on this moment of really kind of maximal vulnerability, I think, for Putin to say, come in with us and basically help us finish this thing. And so, you know, for an administration that has predicated its intervention in the war on this dreaded escalation factor, it's going to be fascinating to see if in the next several days or a week, if the Biden administration's posture changes at all as a result of this. Like, they are not going to advocate for regime change. That's not their policy. But how will they take an opportunity of this moment of Putin's weakness? That's going to be fascinating to watch. And I think, you know, it'll probably be subtle. It'll probably be delayed, frankly, as things often are with this administration. But that is really, really key indicators to keep an eye on. So I want to break this down into a couple of subsets of what Shane was just talking about. I want to ask you, John, about one of the two things that I believe we can conclude from this. And that is, Putin is not as strong as we thought he was. Um, now, whether he survives this, whether he survives it for 20 years, we don't know. Um, but he's certainly weakened by it in the eyes of his country. He had to acknowledge it. They heard what Prigozhin had to say, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, if he, as you pointed out, if he gives in to Prigozhin in any way, that's a potential problem for him. Um, uh, and it's a sign that this war is not going well, because none of this would have happened if the war were going well. Um, but here's what we haven't seen in Moscow. We haven't seen a credible political alternative or even rumblings of one emerge within the Russian government. There was no chance, or very little chance, Prigozhin was going to go up there and launch a coup against the government. He says he wasn't doing it. He said he was going after the Ministry of Defense. Uh, he's a thug. He's, he's never had aspirations, I don't think, of leading a country. Um, do you think 
There are people on the ground in Moscow right now who are meeting quietly, you know, in a park somewhere, so nobody's listening to them and saying <laughs> the guy may be vulnerable. There may be an opportunity here. That's possible. I think it's going to take a, a little bit longer. So your point, David, about sort of humility and reporting is important here because, you know, even in the 90s when Gorbachev fell and the Soviet Union fell and then in 93 when they attacked the parliament, there was a ton of Western journalists there. There were a lot of independent journalists in Russia in the 93 certainly reporting on things. The, the Russian government was not involved in this big game of constant propaganda, disinformation and lies. So right now we're, we're all of us are looking at little snippets of information and trying to make bigger predictions from this. And frankly, I, from what I've watched on Twitter and on TV a little bit is that the mainstream media is actually doing a much better job than most of the experts seem to be. If you follow the Times, the Post, the Atlantic, the Economist, you're getting a much better view of sort of what this means than listening to sort of these, you know, talking, talking heads. But it is a mystery and it's going to take a little bit of time to figure it out. In some ways, you know, Putin has created the situation where he, it, he rules by divide and rule, right? And so everybody, you know, he's the arbiter amongst these sort of mob bosses. And in some ways, you could argue that this, what happened here was sort of a fight among mob bosses. Prigozhin was mad that he was losing power to the military, and therefore he wanted to sort of push back against them to show that, you know, he, they got to take care of his people that did the fighting. Um, now, the bigger question is that it does create weakness over time. I don't think that there you know, there are people sort of already planning on overtaking or overthrowing Putin. He spent 20 years making sure there's no domestic opposition. Even in the Soviet days when there was a Politburo, if the leader was terrible, the Politburo could come together and, and toss the leader potentially. There's none of that now. There's no opposition parties. There's no real opposition. They're in prison or, or not. But this sense of weakness is really important. We saw it, say, in East Germany. When things They had complete control. It's probably the, the best security state of all times. Everybody was spying on everybody. The people never came out to protest. But once they sensed weakness, all of a sudden people started talking, they started moving, and, and it, it quickly led to sort of the end of the regime. I'm not suggesting that for Russia because Putin still controls a lot of the levers of power, but he's less sure of those levers of power than he used to be in the past. He doesn't know inside the military how much loyalty Prigozhin has. He doesn't know if he calls out his military whether they will actually defend and attack other Russians. He has to worry about those kind of things now. So I think this is a longer-term crisis, and we have to watch it really closely. And I think the mainstream media is doing a pretty good job of it, considering that they don't have many people on the ground. It's true. And, and by the way, you hit upon a point that just weighed on me all weekend, and I saw changes nodding. It used to be that all these Broadcast networks had global networks of correspondence around the world. The you know newspapers and 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 magazines and others had, and all that's been drawn back. So essentially, what it you know there's like a three day lag for many of these networks because something happens and then people have to get on a plane, go find a hotel, develop sources, and start reporting on things. Um, it's uh, we're at a disadvantage over where we were. And then people turn to Twitter and they see somebody and, you know, they don't know whether that person's real or not. Um, and, and a lot, and a lot of the time, of course, they're not. Um, so Mark, uh, you know, you have a lot of experience on the ground in these kind of things. You know, my, my conclusions were this Putin is weaker and Ukraine is stronger on the ground in Ukraine because a, 
Wagner is probably taken out of it for the near term as a as a factor. Um, B, there's probably tumult at the top of the Ministry of Defense and the and the military. Uh, C, uh, seeing this kind of weakness and seeing you know troops uh, driving up the M4 um, and taking out helicopters and stuff like that has got to raise a lot of questions in the minds of a bunch of Russians who are not doing well on the ground in Ukraine as it stands right now. This offensive, which some people have talked about as spluttering, which is grossly uh, premature, has taken about 50 square miles more of of Ukraine. It is moving methodically, um, but it's moving in Ukraine's direction. How do you think it affects the situation on the ground in Ukraine, Mark? David, it's, it's a great question. You know, and I, I have to go back, you know, just based on my own experiences. So I ran a paramilitary base in Afghanistan um, back between 2011 and 2012. So it was, you know, 20 CIO officers and a thousand Afghan indigenous forces. And so I was in charge of this indigenous unit. Uh, and one of the things we we spent a lot of time on was something called morale. Um, you know, particularly, you know, sometimes things are going well, sometimes they're, they're not. And so look at the Russian military morale now. Uh, in Ukraine, they're going to be uh, obviously Prigozhin kind of, you know, made some statements which which were quite extraordinary, kind of, you know, uh, punching a hole in, in, in the balloon, which was, you know, Putin's justification for, for the war. They will have heard this. Uh, the terrible state of Russian military leadership. They know that. So, you know, morale is something that it's hard, you know, analytically to kind of put your your, your, your hand around. But it's it's hard to it's hard to build. It's hard to develop. It's important to you have to keep it. And once you lose it, it's very difficult to, to regain that. So I think that's the problem for Russian military forces who are being asked to fight and die. You know, the Ukrainians, you get it. They're fighting for their country. What are the Russians fighting for? Now, this then switches to the to what does, you know, again, how do you operationalize this? And the Ukrainians have been very good. You know, they have an information operations kind of machine, which is constantly trolling uh, uh, the Russians. They had, I mean, at one point, I think it was yesterday, the day before, they had a Ukrainian drone operator, he opened up his kit. This was a tweet, opened up his kit and there was popcorn in there because he's just watching, you know, everything that's happening. I think you're going to see things that, that the Ukrainians did in the past of, you know, sending messages. You know, they'll have the cell phone numbers of all the Russian deployed uh, uh, military uh, uh, units. They're going to send messages saying, you know, what are you doing? Zelensky addressed this, uh, I think, yesterday. And so, you know, this goes to kind of how, do, how, does, how, do, uh, how does Ukraine operationalize this? And then I want to raise one issue, too, and I'm, and I'm going to shift uh, just a, a quick question to Shane, because I think the Post a couple of weeks ago had a really remarkable article, which talked about uh, Budanov, the head of uh, Ukrainian military intelligence, who has turned into you know a pretty influential figure in, in the intel world. I mean, HUR, this is the military intel shop. This is this is almost the new Mossad. You know, they punch far above their weight. But but Budanov had actually been and Shane, please jump in after I'm done here. Budanov had had you know, had made uh, uh, contact with Prigozhin. There's something there, almost that the Ukrainians have totally gotten into to the Russians' head on this. And so, you know, what does that mean in all of this? Everything that, that took place over the last, you know, 48, 72 hours, I kept thinking back to that reporting. Well, hold on a second. You know, what is Ukrainian intelligence doing here to kind of stir the pot? And Shane, you know, you all reported this. I think you're, you know, you're, by, you're on that byline. So what are your thoughts on, on what Budanov has done previously with Prigozhin? and what they can do to kind of further their war aims. Yeah, and as I, as you were 
we were talking this, I was thinking, you know, my next question of, you know, how does Ukraine operationalize this? It was, was how does Budanov operationalize right. this? Because he is responsible for so many of these covert operations, you know, behind Russian lines. Um, the story that we did on the contacts that they've had with Prigozhin, this came out of these, you know, leaked Discord documents uh, that we've had access to. And what they show is that there has been this back channel between Prigozhin and, and Ukrainian military intelligence. And in a really fascinating uh, episode, which it's not entirely clear what it all means, but when the fighting was sort of raging in Bakhmut and these Wagner forces were dying by the thousands, um, the, the reporting said that uh, Prigozhin made an offer uh, to the Ukrainians, which was, if you guys will pull back your troops, I'll give you the locations of Russian troop positions and you can go attack them. And so as this was breaking out over the weekend, I was reminded, you know, before, you know, uh, Prigozhin accused the Russian military of attacking his forces, he reportedly offered to sell out theirs. So there's there's that tension, but there's some kind of channel. And as it's been described to us, you know, really by Ukrainians is like, look, it's not that they're so much trying to ally with um, Prigozhin, but this is a little bit of, you know, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. They, they understand the tensions between him and Putin, and they're trying to kind of keep him in, in the ambit. It. What I'm really curious to see, and what I don't know if this will involve them trying to, the Ukrainians trying to work with Prigozhin, but I, I think the Ukrainians see this as a moment when Putin is weak, Prigozhin is potentially weakened as well, but the Russians generally are weakened by this. And I do not think they're going to let that opportunity pass. I think, you know, here I'm going to make, you know, be dangerous and make a prediction, but I think you're going to see potentially both an uptick in the tempo and then the audacity of Ukrainian special operations inside of Russia. They will try and foment this as much as they can. They will try and encourage people who are um, <clears throat> as, as opposed to the war, skeptical of the war as Prigozhin is to speak up. How they'll be able to do that, we'll see. But they've been pretty clever so far and pretty effective in, in, in at the least sending the message to Putin, we can hit you inside of Russia. We can do car bombings outside of Moscow. We can send drones over strategic bomber bases. Um, and so I, I would look to see them upping the ante there as well. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, at this point, and not you know, not giving a crap whether it gives the White House much heartburn <laughs> about them, you know, launching these attacks. They're going to they're going to seize the moment. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that point about the White House in one moment. This is the point in the show where we take a break and we tell people who are uh, in the general public that to listen to the remainder of the podcast, you got to be a member. And so you go to the dsrnetwork.com and you click on membership and uh, you get all this bonus content from all the podcasts we do. And it's a lot of podcasts. It's this one, Spy Show on Mondays. On Tuesdays, we're coming back with the shows on books and interviews in just a week. Uh, Wednesdays, of course, we have the main DSR show on foreign policy and national security. On Thursdays, we have two different shows on politics and the law, one being Words Matter, the other being our own show, which focuses on this. Um, uh, we also have uh, uh, the show that... Uh, um, uh, we do with Michael Weiss, who looks at these issues very closely, Foreign Office, um, uh, their Secret Life of Cookies. There's all these other shows that we do. Uh, and uh, uh, that's a lot of bonus content. So go to dsrnetwork.com, uh, click on membership and uh, join us for $5 a month. Um, and for the rest of you who are members, stand by. We'll be right back. 